Hi Revive Stronger listeners, I want to take a moment of your time to make you aware of a very special event we are running shortly. On the 14th of July, Mike Isretel and Jared Feather from Renaissance Periodization will be joining us in London for a single day seminar covering the scientific principles of advanced hypertrophy. To purchase a ticket, see the link in the description box of this podcast episode. It will be amazing to see you there. As a listener of the podcast, we can guarantee you will absolutely love the exclusive content that will be presented at the seminar, going deep into things such as structuring your mesocycles nutritionally with your training as well to optimize muscle growth, plus extensive Q&As. So don't miss out. Get your ticket today. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have a very exciting roundtable for you once again, and we are going to be talking about exercise selection for muscle hypertrophy, uh, which is very, very, very exciting, and I'm sure all of you are really looking forward to this. So first of all, we're going to go straight over to Menno uh, to talk about some specific considerations that we should make when selecting exercises for hypertrophy. Um, just kind of the grounding basics initially, and then maybe go into some kind of specifics because Menno has written some great articles about various kind of ways to maximize your kind of exercise selection for hypertrophy. All right, cool. I'll uh, start with uh, the introduction. Can you guys see me, by the way? Because I see my feed is yeah, you're lagging. Camera. Oh, there we go. All right. All right. So, okay, you see the same thing as I do. Good. Uh, let me pu- pull up the article I wrote that you're referring to. So indeed, um, a couple of years ago now, uh, I wrote an article which uh, basically uh, delineated a system of how to select your exercises because most people, when they select their exercises, if you think about it, they go by feel or you know what the, the strongest guy in the gym is doing or something like that. Uh, it's really hard because there isn't that much research on exercise selection and we have to uh, extrapolate a bit from the research that we have. Now. Most people, they select their exercise, like I said, based on um, mainly metabolic stress, the sensation of stretch, um, and the, the perception of muscle activation. And often the, I, I find the perception of muscle activation need not uh, correlate with actual muscle activation. Uh, case in point, for example, Romanian deadlifts. Many people feel that they are not a great exercise for the hamstrings, yet in EMG research, uh, we find that Romanian deadlifts, uh, along with glute ham raises, by the way, uh, typically rank the highest in terms of the exercises that are tested in terms of muscle activation. So there's a, a big bias there in what we feel and uh, what necessarily um, or what actually means that a muscle is being stimulated to a large extent. So I won't go over all the principles. Um, I mean, you can if you Google exercise selection, I think it's still true. It's number one on Google if you Google exercise selection. It's been for many years, so definitely proud of that. It's a bit dated article now, uh, but I can go over the, the key points. Um, so principle one, I'll just go briefly go through it, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the limit factor, which basically states uh, a muscle action needs to be a limiting factor in the performance of a lift to stimulate it well, which is, seems pretty obvious. It's mainly a formal, more formal definition of the fact that an exercise really needs to hit a muscle to actually stimulate it well. And that, for example, unstable surface training and the like, they, they don't meet this criterion. Uh, range of motion. Uh, in, in contrast to one recent study that we may be able to go into uh, a bit later, 
uh, research is pretty uh, unanimous that more range of motion is better for pretty much any outcome they measured. So uh, I'm generally a fan of exercises that stimulate joints over a greater range of motion. And uh, actually, you can think that maybe it's not a joint range of motion, but the actual stimulating the muscle over as large part of, a le of its length as possible. May be able to go into that as well later, the distinction. Um, another principle is uh, the tissue stress distribution, is that you want to stimulate the muscles and not wreck your joints along the way. Uh, principle four is the dynamic contraction, in that you want your exercise to have a concentric and an eccentric contraction. Concentric being that muscles contracting and shortening, and eccentric being that muscles lengthening. Normally, with free weight exercises, concentric means the weight is going up, and eccentric means the weight is going down. Um, then principle five is we want the strength curve or your strength curve to at least roughly match the resistance curve of the exercise. Otherwise, with like um, dumbbell lateral raises, there's only tension at the top. And at the bottom there, literally, if you just hang, let your arm hang straight down, there isn't any tension at all with delts, or at least minimal, certainly not enough to stimulate muscular adaptations in a trained individual. Then principle six, which is a bit more controversial, um, Unilateral exercises tend to result in higher muscle activation than bilateral ones because of the bilateral deficit. Your body is actually not very well adapted or not optimally adapted to perform bilateral movements where two sides of your body are doing the exact same thing. If you think about it in evolutionary terms, running, jumping, uh, almost all motions, throwing, they are all asymmetrical mov movements. In fact, with running, one side of the body is pretty much doing the opposite of the other side continuously. So. Uh, it makes sense in that light. And then the other principles are more uh, practical. Uh, one microloadability is that um, you want your exercises to be able to have a certain load and that you can increment that load uh, a bit uh, pragmatically, realistically. So push-ups are a great exercise for, uh, you know, in, for many of these principles, but it's really hard to, to load them properly and make small incremental steps unless you have something like a weighted vest. You have to get pretty creative to implement progressive overload. And the last one, which isn't in the article, it's actually a new principle, is uh, terminal consistency, which is basically means that you want your exercises to have sort of a, a defined endpoint, because if exercises like lunges have this problem, for example, and it's also why the, uh, the overhead press got banned from the, uh, the Olympic Games, and that it wasn't clear anymore what was still an overhead press, and you know how much can you bend backwards and it's still okay, uh, with lunges, you often see that people uh, start taking smaller strides as they get more fatigued, and then you don't know, are you really progressing or are you just, you know, cheating more and more? So I really like exercises to have a well-defined point A and B, and then, you know, if they completed the rep, it's good. Mm -hmm. It's also with powerlifting. If you think about it, the powerlifts are not, are not that magical mouse builders, I think. I think they're pretty overrated. They're, they're good exercises, certainly, especially the squat, but, you know, not magical by any means. It's just that they are really easy to test. With a deadlift, you pick up the weight, and you know there's little controversy there. Bench press as well, you, you lock it out, it has to touch your chest. Um, and then with the squat already, we see that you know parallel depth, immediately a huge controversy, even though it's pretty well defined already. So if you have something that is even a bit more arbitrary or subjective, then things often get tricky really fast. All right, so that's my crash course into uh, basically sort of the system I came up with. And uh, we'll be happy to discuss it with uh, Eric and Mike.
Excellent. No, I thought that was a brilliant kind of principled approach to selecting exercises and really, really interesting. And I do want to go over to Eric and just see if there are any kind of principles that you heard within there that you think maybe you have a slightly different view to um, or anything that you kind of want to further kind of recommend to the audience. No, I, I mainly just want to like pat his head and give him a hug because I really like that information. The, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of the things that drive my exercise selection more subjectively, he actually applied a, a systematic rule system to. Like literally just five minutes ago, I posted a video on seal rows. And one of the reasons why I like them is because they have terminal consistency, because uh, they have a full range of motion than say a barbell row. And uh, you know, they're, they're, they've got a lot of the, those values to them. Um, so I think, I, think I, I largely agree with those and typically you know, my systems for, for choosing uh, exercise selection is not, is, is based subjectively around that, but the things I normally focus on are, are gross motor patterns and the, what are effective ways to try to train muscle groups through different range of motions, through angles and muscle group patterns, if you, if you want to call it that. So now I'm all on board with that. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Mike, is there anything there you wanted to pick up? Yeah, that sounded very good. Um, the unilateral versus bilateral. Um, always been a little bit skeptical of the applicability of the bilateral deficit. Um, one of the problems is that so the way they usually test the bilateral deficit is uh, through um, bicep uh, bicep curling in a, a, a sort of a, in a dynamometer setup or um, an isokinetic dynamometer, or they test it in a leg extension setup. And they have very elaborate ways of seat belting the rest of your body so that it can't really move. So you can really lean in and put in all the effort into that uh, place. As, uh, with a couple of exceptions of exercises, it's a, I find quite difficult to do a single joint or single side movements um, and generate the kind of forces that you're interested in because the balance component sort of takes a lot of, uh, sort of preeminence, um, you know, the legs stuff anything short of an extension, it starts to get really difficult to generate a whole lot of force um, just off of one leg because stability is so difficult. Um, pulling is, is possible for, uh, for a couple of exercises, but um, there's some challenges there, you know, one arm row, possibly one arm pull down, but then you miss up, miss the, miss the really good benefits of pull-ups, I think a little bit better than pull downs. And then uh, pushing exercises are particularly challenging to do with one arm. Um, because the balance is, is very, very difficult. So um, I think that uh, there's some sort of gap between the theory of the bilateral deficit and its application. In addition to that, uh, because of the fact that force production is uh, not a limiting factor in most resistance training applications. And is this for hypertrophy, Steve, or is this just for... Uh, hypertrophy specific. Yeah, so for hypertrophy, I think that... Um, as long as we're lifting above 60% of our 1RM and with modifications to a failure and rep ranges and stuff, we can go even lighter than that. Um, I just don't think that it's uh, worth a trade-off to push super high forces at any one particular uh, series of joints or muscles uh, unilaterally. Um, we can, uh, in fact, save quite a bit of time and quite a bit of setup and enhance safety by lifting bilaterally um, most of the time since force isn't really a big constraint. Perfect. Um, Menno, have you got any, any points on that? Or Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, so one thing I didn't uh, emphasize in the um, 
the crash course is that with all the principles, it's like all else equal. So yeah. as Mike touched on, uh, this huge point with many unilateral exercises is that often you may get unilateral exercise or semi-unilateral, uh, but then it sacrifices the first principle being uh, the limiting factor. Um, so in that principle, is, it's really only a sort of a dominant choice in my mind, often for like leg extensions and leg curls. Like I see little reason other than if you have a knee issue or something to perform those bilaterally. Maybe like for powerlifters, because you actually want to train to reduce the bilateral deficit, which is possible. But for like bodybuilding purposes, uh, especially because to also correct for asymmetries and muscular balance and the like, I all, almost always do like leg extensions, leg curls, those kind of exercises unilaterally. And when it comes to more complex movements, then there's definitely a trade-off there often. Uh, although I have to say, if you look at the research from uh, Bulgarian split squats, which almost everyone complains of, and I freaking hate the exercise, um, everyone complains that balance is like the limiting factor. Almost everyone says like, oh yeah, I feel like I cannot stimulate muscles very well because I, I can balance myself. If you look at research, uh, now we have at least three studies, I think, comparing split squats to barbell back squats. And EMG activation is like the same, finds a bit less in the rectus femoris and a bit more in the hamstrings. But um, surprisingly, even muscle activation in the erector spinae seems to be comparable during split squats with a barbell on your back at least, uh, and uh, barbell back squats. So it, it seems that even when in scenarios where you subjectively feel like uh, balance is a, a huge issue, uh, it may not actually be that much of an issue for your muscles. At least in some way, balance is sort of strength if you define it as the ability to produce force in a given motor pattern. Uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, you don't want to just all do all exercises on one leg or arm uh, as like push-ups and pull-ups and the like. They become really awkward. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I think um, that's a really good point that you made that we need to take into account all of the kind of principles that you've laid out and make sure they're not kind of upsetting one another because you're trying too hard to achieve one of them and complaining about the others. Uh, go for it, Eric. So this is just a minor comment that's kind of the scientist in me being a little pedantic, but um, I would say that all else being equal, EMG can be a useful tool, especially when we don't have longitudinal data on exercise comparisons. But fundamentally, EMG doesn't necessarily tell us about the tension applied to a muscle. Um, I mean, just the, the basis of the way you run an EMG study, most of the time, you can do this dynamically, but most of the time you're working off of a maximum voluntary isometric contraction. So you'll get someone in a specific position dictated by the literature, have them contract as hard as they can, and then you're giving percentages based on that to give the idea of peak values in the muscle group through a dynamic, through, through a dynamic movement. Um, but as we know from, from other research, isometric contractions aren't that great at stimulating muscle growth. Um, you know, uh, like Menno talked about, training through a full range of motion has, besides, I think, for one study on, on triceps, I believe, uh, which probably had more to do with the modality than the, uh, than, anyway, I don't want to get too off, too off track. Basically, we're basing muscle contraction value on an isometric movement, uh, which, which kind of shows you inherently the, the lack of that being a direct measurement of the hypertrophic stimulus of, of a movement, you know. Uh, if you can get a very high value doing something that we know doesn't stimulate muscle, we just have to keep that in mind. 
So I would say use EMG studies in the absence of data that actually looks at hypertrophy, which would be like 90% of the time. So it is kind of a pedantic point in the reality of the research, but it's something to not too much, put too much faith, faith in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. No, perfect. I think, um, no, there was a recent tricep study and I think the EMG kind of um, aspects came out recently, well, fairly recently with Brett Contreras and the, the hip thrust and he kind of made a the statement where he might have overemphasized their kind of ability and their usefulness because of exactly that point you just made, Eric. So I think that that's a great point for people to take into consideration. Um, I don't know if, Mike, you want to go on to any specific exercises you think are particularly good for hypertrophy? Obviously, um, we've just gone through the principles of just like basic, do they tick these boxes? But are there any you would think of or deem as better than others, all things being equal? Mm. Man, because I had my own little uh, little box checking predictably. Uh, um, actually, uh, you know, not a huge fan when people on Instagram should ask me about like, uh, you know, what's the best exercise for X, Y, Z. It's very, um, I, I will say that I will, I will make uh, the following claim the likelihood. I'm not so sure this is true, but I'm pretty sure, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, for me to get away from the compound barbell and body weight basics. Um, the degree, and I know that not everyone agrees that this is a correlate of muscle growth, even though I think it, it, it is, the degree of local homeostatic disruption to musculature in relation to the amount of total work done for these exercises is the very least a, a very advantageous from an efficiency perspective. So, for example, um, high bar back squats, um, weightlifting style, um, leg presses, I think, actually kind of enter into this, and hack squats as well as the same kind of uh, movement. Um, and barbell rows, full range of motion pull-ups, overhead barbell presses, upright rows, um, stiff-legged deadlifts, uh, RDLs, whatever the fuck people call them. Um, I have a whole pedantic thing on that nomenclature that I'm not going to bother with here. Uh, it's the same thing. It's just the Romanians showed up. They did them. Everyone around the world was doing them too, and some cocksucker decided to name them Romanian deadlifts for no fucking reason. But um, so uh, those kinds of exercises... Uh, from my experience, from the experience of most people that train just seem to do a better job, at least per unit time, of stimulating hypertrophy. Um, and I think they should be the core of most people's resistance training program, especially if you're struggling to grow versus struggling with fatigue management. I'll make that distinction pretty clear. So if you're not super struggling to grow, but you're just, so for example, your um, axial loading is completely out of hand. Um, it's just your back, that there's your spine, it's just not taking the stress, yeah, I think you could uh, make a really good argument for doing a bit more isolation work, a bit more sort of appendicular only loading, leg presses, and um, you know, maybe uh, leg extension, stuff like that as a predominant part of your program versus things like squats, et cetera. But I think if someone, you know, if someone comes up to me in the gym and says, listen, I've tried everything, my legs just won't get bigger. I'm like, are you high bar back squatting for multiple sets of you know, 10 to 15 reps? And if they say no, I'm like, well, I got, I got a solution for you. You're not gonna like the solution. But it sure as hell, and if that's not going to make your legs bigger, then nothing probably will. So um, I just think those exercises um, should be probably the first go-to movements because they seem to be just um, rep for rep more effective so long as fatigue's not a, uh, as big of a deal. As fatigue becomes more of a big deal, you might have to sandwich those exercises later into a program, pre-exhausting and things like that um, can, can be useful. But um, I think every time, 
I've been involved in a discussion of, well, you know, because, you know, there's the position people take that the compound basics being the best is just dogma. I, mean, I agree there are dogmatic elements to that. But um, I think they check all of the boxes, usually, of the technical characteristics of good exercises. And in addition, they have this advantage of being um, just ecologically very sound. Like, I've never really seen anyone barbell incline press, you know, 180 kilos for reps and not have a fucking gigantic chest. It just doesn't happen. Um, on the other hand, you can you'd see all sorts of weird shit with machines and dumbbells and kind of big. And I don't know, maybe you got really good at doing that stuff. So, uh, and, and again, I think uh, Menno and, uh, and Eric both pointed out, they're very easy to test. Uh, you know you're, you, how many pull-ups you can do. And if you're heavier and you can do more pull-ups, that's just a real easy way to get a big back. So I think that, uh, you know, especially for a lot of the folks listening, are relying uh, on the core compound heavy basics. And I, I, I suppose just compound basics, heavy is not required. You can do them for higher reps. Um, I think it's just a really good good start. And I, any argument that tries to say that, well, you can do as much with isolation movements um, is theoretically uphill and practically falls on almost completely deaf ears because there's pretty much nobody jacked ever that has gotten jacked doing only isolation moves, um, except for the, uh, the super slow trainer guys. Uh, but they're like too jacked. You know, I don't think anyone wants to be that big. <laughs> That's just crazy. <laughs> just do all that shit through Nautilus machines. Fantastic. And uh, Menno and Eric, are you in agreement? Big compound barbell basics, kind of a, your kind of bread and butter for hypertrophy, so long as people can do them? I think that last piece you just said there, so long as people can do them, um, needs to be acknowledged that's a problem frequently. Um, and that some people are really just not built to to do some compound movements, like the biggest ones you can, the, the most common culprits I would say are uh, deadlift and squat variations that when you're moving, when you have a, a great movement that moves multiple joints through a full range, it only takes one joint or one segment length to be a bit of an outlier in terms of either it's, it's length or a lack of, of ability to move that through a full range to cause a pretty serious issue from someone. Um, so I've ran into enough people where a squat is just probably a great tool for, for injuring their back, but not much else. Um, to where I, I agree in, in, in manlets, but for, for some other people, uh, I think, I think not necessarily and womenlets for that matter. <laughs> and actually just because we're on the topic and I know, I think Menno might've even written about this before on the deadlift specifically for hypertrophy. I think this is a bit of a controversial topic. Uh, Menno, <clears throat> what's your thoughts on kind of deadlifts for hypertrophy? Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan. Uh, like not the biggest fan of the conventional powerlifting deadlifts. I mean, specifically put it that way. I'm a big fan of Romanian uh, deadlifts or stiff leg deadlifts, if you want to call them that way, Mike. Um, but the conventional deadlifts, where you just pick the bar up the floor and then you sort of drop it, uh, you just have a concentric contraction. I think a lot of people do it because, you know, it's really easy to move big weights, makes you look like the beast at the gym. Um, it feels really badass. It's a pretty simple movement, you know. You have to keep your back or at least your lumbar spine somewhat in alignment. Um, but all in all, compared to, say, the squat, it's not a very technical exercise. Uh, certainly not if you're not um, trying to maximize your powerlifting performance and edge out every little bit of uh, uh, technical optimality. Um, those not-so-good reasons aside, I think the actual physiological reasons to perform the deadlift are not very uh, supportive of its use for bodybuilding purposes because it's purely a concentric motion. You can do a concentric or eccentric contraction, of course, if you carefully drop the weight down. 
Then in the bottom position, though, a lot of people find the movement very injurious. So injurious. So it's like theoretically possible, but in practice, it becomes a lot more injurious, which uh, you know is also a big factor in terms of uh, tissue stress distribution, as I would call it. Uh, and then there's uh, the range of motion. The range of motion is arbitrarily determined by the radius of the place you're using. Instead of, say, for a Romanian, Romanian that is determined by your body and that you can push your hips back as far as possible. And most people, other than some women and uh, maybe one guy in existence, uh, can actually perform full range of motion without the plates interfering with um, the movement. With a deadlift, uh, that's the case for almost nobody. So it's like you, compared to a Romanian deadlift, you have all these disadvantages. And then the only advantage is you sort of have um, more or less half ass stimulation of the quads. Um, along with it, which is again concentric only through like a very partial range of motion, you sort of squat, you sort of very roughly start in the deadlift in a half squat range of motion. So you don't have that much tension, and at the top, there's no tension anymore on the quads at all or minimal. So I think for the quads in particular, deadlifts are not a great exercise, uh, and I see very little reason for a bodybuilder to do uh, those unless they really prefer them compared to say Romanian deadlifts and then do leg extensions for the quads or something. Squats I'm a big fan of, bench press, also if people can do them uh, pain-free, as Eric emphasized, which I think for all three of the powerlifts, not just squats and deadlifts, is a, um, a big uh, issue in practice. Perfect. And I think, um, Mike, I don't know if you want to talk on, you already spoke about kind of the spinal loading aspect, and I guess that's a big kind of uh, thing to take into account when we're putting in a deadlift and a hypertrophy program. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so huge on the deadlift either in purely hypertrophy terms. I mean, for strength, it's indispensable because if you can almost define strength by deadlifting ability, just pick that up. You know, <laughs> um, if you're really strong, you can. Um, but uh, so I, I don't. Uh, I don't think the deadlift is is um, you know all things considered an amazing uh, tool for hypertrophy. Insofar as you have to include other things, especially it's uh, it's axial loading is massive, and its fatigue to stimulus ratio is probably not that great. Um, there's only one exercise I can think of that has a, a worse fatigue to stimulus ratio, and that's um, rack deadlifts or partial deadlifts, which is an exercise in pure fuckery as far as I'm concerned, unless you're a strongman or a powerlifter. And a lot of bodybuilders love to do rack deadlifts because they're too fucking lazy to pick up a deadlift from the ground, and they want to be seen lifting big weights, and all these fucking idiots are on a shitload of insulin and growth hormone, and they're wearing belts all the time to keep their waist small, and then they do the only exercise that can probably actually grow your waist uh, just for the sheer fucking amount of force you're putting through it. It's just baffling, it's just total fucking nonsense. Every time I see anyone do a rack deadlift on social media, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot, dislike. I wish there was a fucking dislike button uh, on Instagram, but yeah, it just it's, it's, to me, it's a wholly pointless, it's like, how do you want to get the highest chance of injury, the most fatigue? And then when I ask you what part of your body does that grow, you don't really kind of know. You like everything, brother. Well, that's not a fucking part of your body. Supposedly the spinal erectors, but if you do enough bent over rows and enough stiff-legged deadlifts, um, your spinal erectors are not a problem for you anymore. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the more full range of motion the deadlift, snatch grip deadlift, deficit deadlift, the more I can start to see an argument, especially for perhaps glute hypertrophy, especially if it's done sumo style, um, and some good erector hypertrophy and traps and all that stuff. But the uh, more the range of motion decreases for the deadlift, uh, the more it is an exercise in, uh, in mismanagement of total fatigue and, and injury risk, I think, especially That's, for bodybuilding. There's actually a study on... Um... Uh, interesting on uh, how long it takes to recover from an exercise given uh, I think they did three sets and they found that the deadlift was the single outlier in the entire selection they did. They did not test squats but they did test leg presses 
And it was all like, it took 24, 48 hours to recover from everything, but the deadlift was like 72 hours plus. In the, in the real world of practical loads with advanced individuals that learn how to really tap into their neural capabilities, it's going to be much more than that. I mean, like there's a variety of programs. There's a squat every day program, which people seem to do. And until they break in, into pieces, uh, uh, they seem to do fine uh, for at least several months at a time. You can bench every day if you get creative. There is no such thing as a deadlift every day program for a good reason. Because all the people that have literally tried it are actually dead. Um, so it just it would be wholly pointless. It's one of those things where it's clearly evident the fatigue is a limiting factor. If you try to deadlift back to back on two days, like um, when I've mismanaged my fatigue in the deadlift historically, it's not it's not such a thing that like usually I can do you know 190 kilos for sets of five, and then one day I get like you know a set of four at the end. When I've overreached on deadlift, it's like 190 doesn't leave the ground, and you're like I do this for sets of five and it just won't move, and you're like well fuck this. So you quickly find out that it's it's really um, deadlift you do to get strong to be a good powerlifter. It can work I think for higher repetitions for bodybuilders if it's a deficit pull and if you really want to thicken up the back. Uh, but uh, I think other than that, it has to be used uh, just just intelligently and sparingly. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And Eric, if you want to just uh, comment on any of that and then move on to uh, kind of number of variants for a bodybuilder, is there kind of a number of variants you think is a good idea versus kind of too few, too many? Yeah, I, I think uh, just to, to in defense of, of the deadlift, just a little bit, uh, I will say that people who are well built to deadlift, I actually met or there, there's a Norwegian, I think he's a 74 kg IPF lifter who deadlifts four to five times a week. And then when you look at him, you understand why, <laughs> um, like he's, he's built in such a way that, that he's probably one of the few people who could handle that kind of frequency and volume. And he also has an incredible deadlift for probably that reason as well. Um, and it's included in powerlifting because it's a great test of over full body strength, which means if you had to do maybe one movement, it would be a, a decent choice for hypertrophy, but that's just not ever a realistic scenario. Even if you just have a barbell and, and you could do like rows and overhead press and you could clean it and do a front squat and you could do a floor press. So uh, nonetheless, I, I largely agree. And I think the useful variations are one, the big issue I have with the deadlift is just that um, it's so easy to perform without an eccentric or without a controlled eccentric. I don't even mean a slow eccentric, I just mean some control over it. Uh, but something like a good morning, which is essentially an RDL with the bar on your back that's not fatiguing your grip or your lats, um, an RDL, um, or you know, even some of the more like mid-stance sumo position, if you do want to pull off the floor, I think that's a very useful one that kind of reduces injury risk. It's not a great strength movement, kind of you lose all the benefits of sumo and conventional, but you also lose a lot of the injury risk. I think those are all much better options than your conventional or sumo deadlift. Um, now I think I'm answering this question too specifically to deadlift. So Steve, can I clarify what you wanted to ask me? Um, so that, that was just kind of answering whether deadlifts were a good kind of lift for hypertrophy. And then once you kind of finished your piece on that, which I think you kind of have move on to kind of variation force like muscle groups. So like, should we be doing lots of variation within our mm. kind of mesocycles or, and then we can move on to kind of how often we might vary our pick, picking our movements, but initially kind of like how many movements would you have for your chest and then how many for back and Absolutely. So I I will go against the grain of traditional hypertrophy wisdom and say, I think you need a certain amount of variety, but I don't think you need to switch that variety up very much, although you can. Um, 
we don't have this like one study that I'm aware of where we looked at like a a changing of of, of movements and relative to hypertrophy. Uh, and I think they used they had one group doing only uh, Smith machine squats and another group that also did I think lunges and deadlifts and leg press. In addition to that, I can't remember the exact movements. And global hypertrophy was the same, uh, but you saw better distribution of that hypertrophy over the quadricep in the group that did more movements. So to me, this is one of those studies where I go, yeah, in principle, you shouldn't just do one movement for your entire lower body. I agree, but I don't necessarily think that means more variety is better. I don't know how conceptually useful that study is because if it's such as low ecological validity, um, all the other research we have and the benefits of variation, when people hear variation, they immediately think exercise variation. But what the research is actually on is on things, uh, mathematical equations of monotony and strain, uh, which are actually have to do with uh, variation in the total stress of training, uh, which is the argument behind, or one of the arguments behind periodization and, uh, and varying uh, loads and, and volume. So I think that is very important, and that is enough of a, of, of a level of variation that I'm very confident you could take a bodybuilder who had 16 movements or something like that that they only used for their entire career, and that would not hurt them. And I'll go on record for that. That said, you don't need to be an expert in the movements you do. You need to be competent enough so that when you come back to them, you're not uh, seeing your, your, your strength gains and your ability to perform work confounded by neuromuscular adaptations that are being regained. So certain movements that are very, very low complexity, I see no problem switching them out almost every session. Like you can come in and choose your bicep curl. Like it's, it's elbow flexion. Like it doesn't matter. Like, no, I only do the preacher curl because I have to be an expert preacher curler. Like that's not a thing. Um, so I think isolation movements, you can, you can, you can swap those out and have a lot of variety. And there's a recent study uh, by Rausch on uh, auto-regulated exercise selection, which I think shows that you can definitely do that. Uh, one thing to point out is that the group that did auto-regulate their exercise selection, they actually chose more compound movements than the group doing isolation. So it kind of goes back to Mike's point and also suggests that it wasn't like they were, you think like, oh, they can do whatever they want. And these guys have to do these exercises. Therefore, they were doing exercises more frequently, not necessarily. They benched a lot more, you know? So um, I think it's probably a good idea to select a core handful of compound movements that train horizontal press, vertical press, horizontal pull, vertical pull. And I just did those movements backwards, but you know what I mean. And then a hip hinge pattern um, with all the caveats around the deadlift that we talked about and some kind of squat pattern, which, you know, could be a leg press if you're not built for it. And then those get roughly maintained at least once per week, pretty much all the time. Uh, but maybe through like a deload or a transition block, you pull out the axial loading to reduce some stress there. I think that's totally fine. But I would say 90% of the time, once a week at least, you should be doing the, uh, the compound movements that are your kind of core exercises. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, and Menno, would you have the same sort of principles within your kind of exercise selection, having that core compound that you wouldn't normally change and then maybe varying isolation more so, or, or do you have any different thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think Mike had a point first, but uh, I'll make one quick point on that, um, because uh, I think it's good to emphasize on that, that study that uh, Eric uh, mentioned. They only measured hypertrophy in the quadriceps. So uh, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit more powerful 
than if you know if they measure the whole body or the whole lower body. But uh, the quadriceps has you know only one function basically: uh, extend the knee. Rectus femoris can also flex the hip, but um, it's 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 somewhat um, supportive or convincing that you need some variety uh, in the sense that even such a simple muscle group may benefit uh, from more than one exercise at least. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely in agreement that you don't need uh, that much variety, and I think um, many people overdo um, the variety. And also, uh, I add that I think a lot of coaches add variety because it's a very easy way to fake progression in their clients. When you put someone on a new self exercises every four weeks, which is now pretty often heard, it's uh, for one thing, just a way to satisfy your clients crave for continuous novelty. And secondly, a really easy way to continuously facilitate uh, strength progress or what seems like strength progression, because if you do a completely new exercise, then everyone can get stronger. You know, if you if I have you do unilateral leg presses now for the first time uh, in, in months, then sure, any anything you do, you will get stronger on that exercise. But try putting 20 kilos on an advanced lifter's bench press. That will generally correlate with muscle growth. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely largely in agreement with Eric here. Perfect. And sorry, Mike, go, go for your uh, comments. Mm. No worries. I'll, I'll uh, get a little disagreement going here. So I think the uh, approach as strong as possible on a consistent number of movements is fundamentally a very good approach for tracking hypertrophy, mostly because we know that if you are stronger on something and you're pretty adept at it uh, as far as movement patterns, just know where the strength can come from other than added size. It's a good measurement tool. I think that it's good to go really far down that rabbit hole, but I don't think it's good to go past a certain point. Um, uh, so it's pretty clear that uh, most bodybuilders per their cross-sectional area are not as strong as powerlifters are. It's actually not even close. Um, bodybuilders have huge quads and they're very strong, but compared to powerlifters, with not so big quads. Uh, they're kind of weak. I think after a while, uh, trying to limit your exercise variation in order to get as strong as possible um, is going to make you neurologically highly adept. It's going to cause some uh, macrostructural changes and pination angles, et cetera, that take a really long time to change. And uh, you're going to find uh, sort of a new level of technique enhancement uh, after you have a stable technique you start to go down the road of really, really optimizing your technique. And I think that's where a lot of later strength increases come from. So I think if someone's already really, really strong in the squat, making them that much stronger, I don't really think is as predictive of muscle size gains as we might think it is. For example, if Andre Milanichev, who uh, squats, uh, you know, 450K for reps, very good technique. If he came to all of us and said, I wanted bigger quads, I don't think we would all be interested in having him increase his squat even further as the first primary way to get him bigger quads. I sure as hell wouldn't do that. I would enhance exercise variation for him and try to get, uh, get him to push the volume versus pushing the intensity. So, uh, so that being said, I think that there is a limit to the idea that if we just get strong over the long term, uh, you know, then it'll take care of all hypertrophy. I think there's a certain amount of neural technical efficiency and uh, tissue architecture that starts to take over and the actually yield for how much hypertrophy you get per unit of work uh, starts to decline, uh, I think, due to staleness and 
you know, what, what I uh, like to term adaptive resistance. I think after a while, they're using the same stuff, same exercise, same exercise, same exercise, uh, your body becomes a little bit resistant to hypertrophy. And uh, I think we see this in bodybuilders who have a much higher variation. I would say too high in most of the cases, but higher than powerlifters. Uh, they're usually per cross-sectional area much, uh, much larger. Um, I think that uh, to that end, I think uh, you, you should be proficient at movements, but I think you can trade out even the big movements for other big movements, I would say every several months, to deal with this issue of staleness. I think this also gives us a couple of other advantages. So, uh, so yeah, so this idea that you have to progressively kind of get as strong as possible on a couple of core lifts, um, I find uh, to be lacking in, uh, in evidence to some extent. Uh, I think it goes against the idea of staleness and adaptive resistance. I think the evidence for bodybuilders versus powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters shows that the people that are the very strongest in this, uh, and constrain their exercise selection on purpose, which is weightlifters and powerlifters, just aren't as big as we would predict they would be if pushing maximum neural efficiency strength and at the expense of variation was what we wanted. Um, I think that different regions of muscle can be grown better with some exercises versus others. So I think we should rotate those exercises in and out not too quickly, not every microcycle, not even every mesocycle, but every couple of mesocycles. And I also think that rotating compound exercises accomplishes another very good benefit, which is it reduces chronic injury risk. So for example, if you squat in a preferred stance, you are consistently irritating the same parts of the knees, hips, et cetera. If you continue to do that for three or four months, you're probably okay. If you do that for years, you're probably going to build up some really gnarly little mini injuries that continue to bog you down. And then you'll have to change their stance with or your setup or something, even for your first exercises and abandon the old variants altogether for a very long time to let them heal. I like to preempt that process by only going at certain exercises for several uh, months at a time, then alternating their foot, foot position uh, or even the exercise itself to make sure that the chronic injury risk, the same kind of local wear and tear doesn't ever add up to anything really concerning. Last thing I think was bleeped out last time was that um, it is uh, by no means clear to me that early phase adaptations when you're neurologically not as efficient, when you're gaining neurological strength, it's by no means clear to me that you're not gaining size at that time. Uh, I think most of the studies that show that you're not gaining size are either poorly measured, measure the wrong thing, or on beginners who are essentially being almost overtrained because their first time experience, the level of muscle damage, uh, basically the volume is too much. If they started out with much lower volumes and, and slowly built up, I think you would see some of the highest hypertrophy rates early in the development of, of technique at the same time. So uh, I think that for that reason, I sort of take the middle ground position on variation and say every one to four mesocycles, depending on a level of advancement, that most exercises should be rotated out for others. Um, I don't take the position that you should rotate them out every microcycle. I think that's more, more, a little bit too extreme. Uh, but I also don't think that you should have a core set of movements that you always do all the time, because I think for the reasons listed, uh, you're going to find yourself in, in some non-optimal circumstances there. Cool. So I think, um, Eric, that kind of goes quite head on against your statement mm -hmm. of um, we could, you would go on record saying we could keep the same compound movements and be absolutely fine. Do you want to have any kind of comments back to what Mike has to say there? Yeah, I'm, um, I think some of the, the arguments Mike used, I'm not convinced by and others, I think have some good logical ramifications. I think we're confounded uh, by a couple of things when we're looking at the comparison between strength athletes and bodybuilders is one, they don't just train different exercises, they train differently. Uh, strength athletes train as heavy as possible. So even if you were to take 
power lifters and Olympic lifters and have them train with the 10 to 12 rep range, which would be a terrible thing to do on some of those movements. Uh, and then you were to compare them longitudinally over time, I think you would see because of higher volumes and less specific uh, training and high, high force production, you'd see those same differences. Uh, but I do agree that you'd need some level of variation to optimize hypertrophy just because you're trying to train every muscle group uh, through full ranges of motion, through all those different factors that Menno used as a uh, kind of a checklist to dictate good movements. So I don't think the fact that uh, strength athletes are more efficient per unit of cross-sectional area and strength uh, can be used as evidence that you should be using more exercise selection. And to even further kind of show why that argument sort of falls on its face, um, when you look at elite level power lifters, uh, the higher the level of the power lifter from the data we have, the more cross-sectional area seems to in, uh, correlate with strength levels, indicating that it might be one of the traits that is more important once things like your technique and uh, other factors are pretty honed in. So that's where I will disagree. Um, but I do agree in principle that you have to have some level of variation, A, to optimize hypertrophy, just because three movements simply can't do it. Um, and then B, I do think overuse injuries are a thing and, and, and can be problematic. Uh, however, I think that you, get, uh, you can get around that a lot uh, with variations in load intensity, doing things like deloads. Um, and then also, uh, I, like I said, to, to make, make – to make it clear, even though I did say, I think you keep the same movements a lot of the times, I also said having occasional deloads where you switch out axial loading and maybe have like a transition block, uh, I would probably just have a different ratio than Mike. You know, maybe you go three or four mesocycles using the same core movements and then you have a mesocycle that's pretty different in all ways for a month. Um, but the vast majority of that reduction in injury risk is gonna come from uh, variations in load and intensity. Um, and, yeah, I think I think while we I, I, we've talked about adaptive resistance before on this podcast, I don't think that's going to be an issue in someone who is training in a, a vast variety of rep ranges and different training stresses, uh, different loads and volumes, especially for a bodybuilder. I'm not concerned about doing the same movement necessarily uh, with with that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think probably there's some some like foundational information level disagreements that Mike and I have. But I think in the end, it sounds like he's going to change compounds out every one to four muscle cycles. And I'm just kind of on the far end of that. Uh, so I don't know in, in practice really how different that is. One thing I don't like to do though, is to take compound movements and shift someone's foot position around or, or change the, the way they're performed. I think they should be performed in, the safest, most consistent way, kind of your, your timeless form where we know we could load that. Uh, there may be a few options there, but I would go with what the person feels the most comfortable uh, and then maintain that uh, in, unless something injury or, or a new revelation about how your body works, like you figured out, actually, I, I don't have symmetrical hips and now I want to try a slightly offset stance. It's always felt better, but I just didn't like the way it looked because I'm OCD. Sure. Um, but Assuming that we do actually figure out what's best for your body, I think that form should be maintained. And if you want to hit different muscle groups or you want to switch things out, a different exercise should be used. I think that we want to maintain uh, consistent performance on a movement so that when we assess changes in your performance, we can use that as a decent proxy for progress. And I think that is really important 
especially when you're working with advanced lifters to be able to measure progress. And then the, uh, the last thing I would say is that I agree that there are muscular adaptations that are happening while we're getting neurological adaptations, especially in untrained lifters. Um, but I think, I think they would be dampened if you were completely learning a new movement and kind of basically figuring things out in trained lifters. We don't have great research on this. The closest study I can think of is one in the 90s, and I'm forgetting the lead author right now, where they compared uh, leg press bench and curls, and they had a midpoint assessment. So they're measuring both uh, either cross-sectional area or muscle thickness, and then also strength gains. And they saw strength gains in all three uh, at mid and post, uh, but only hypertrophy gains in the bicep curl at mid. Uh, and they're even measuring a bigger versus smaller muscle. So I don't think it was a measurement error issue. It seems like uh, it takes longer to get neuromuscularly proficient with a, a compound movement like a leg press or a bench press that requires intermuscular coordination. And it wasn't until the end when that had been achieved a certain degree that the hypertrophy started to pile on. So I think, uh, I think that's, that's something to consider is you don't want to re-enter the learning phase. Now, I'm not saying that means... Therefore, keep everything the same all the time. I only do 10 movements or something like that. Uh, everything I previously said, I still think you should do. But I do think that you don't want to set up whatever paradigm you have of training uh, in such a way that you have to go, oh, shit, how do I do this again? Uh, as long as you can avoid that and maintain proficiency, maybe not expertise, I think you're good to go. Okay. Perfect. Me, I got a quick question. I have a question. So... Um, every now and again, I'll hear a critique of a study that shows something uh, different than we were doing uh, has resulted uh, in, you know, uh, an advantage. For example, people say, you know, this high-frequency study that came out for, uh, you know, just any, any high-frequency study, and it'll show an advantage in hypertrophy over low-frequency. And a lot of people who seem to have a good head on their shoulders say, well, you know, we're not correcting for the novelty factor. There's a novelty factor here, and maybe it's just, it's just because it was different that they grew. Now, so if novelty, in your view, uh, is not an actual advantage in hypertrophy, how are they just completely uh, off base saying that? Um, how can we have both novelty seen as a, a, uh, something we have to correct for as a, co a confounder of hypertrophy and at the same time as a literal negative, uh, if not just moot point? Um, what, do you, what are your views on that? It's, like, it's a little confusing uh, uh, from my perspective as to what it is that novelty actually gains us, if anything, or is it just a, a big downside? That's a good question. I think, um, I think it comes at a cost, is I guess what I'm saying. So I do think that when you do a new exercise, and then once you kind of get past that, that learning phase and you become competent in it, you're probably going to have a new avenue for growth. And I would actually agree kind of going back to, again, I think oftentimes we disagree in theory, but sometimes the practice isn't that different. We went back to that 450 kg squatter. I don't think pumping up volume and just doing more squats because he's probably hard at doing plenty of squats is going to be the answer. And then maybe maintaining his squat strength or even 95% of it while doing other movements would make the most sense. Um, however, um, that there was a little piece in there where there was a trade-off. We had to probably reduce his squat volume to do something else. So if that trade-off looks like I'm not going to touch a primary compound movement uh, that we've been developing skill on that is a useful way to measure progress, or we're going to alter its form, um, that's a trade-off that I don't think is necessarily worth the novelty factor because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So I do think, yeah, novelty in the context of exercise selection uh, and once you're past the learning phase may result in some more 
or, or some better gains. But I think the way to work that in, uh, you have to consider what is the trade-off that if, if you're going to step away from a compound movement that you've been using to assess your progress for months and then come back to it, was it worth it? Uh, and, and that's something where I'm less confident in it being worth it in every case. So I'm good to get novelty from switching out some accessory movements and some like not the main core lifts. And also I think there's novelty in going through cycles of high versus low rep training. I don't think uh, that, that, that are able to step, step sideways from, from that. You can still maintain the same, uh, largely the same motor patterns as far as each repetition is concerned uh, when doing say a squat versus a squat without having to step away from a squat for six to eight weeks and then come back to it because you want to do a leg press or a different variation of the squat. So I think it just depends on how you set up that system. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, for example, um, let's say you train legs twice per week and you have a slot for a squat pattern and you have a slot for a hip hinge and you have three, three variations for each that you rotate through. I think that'd be okay. I think that's kind of within the range of not losing that, that skill, but getting more variety. Uh, maybe that's not the most effective way to do the variety, but just to give some context to what I'm theorizing, I think that that's useful so that we don't think we're on totally different sides of the equation here. Yeah, by, by the way, just to clear something up, um, I would call different foot positions and, and hand positions different exercises. I wouldn't call yeah. them the same exercises. To, so like a, a sumo squat versus a, a conventional squat versus a feet forward squat. It's three different movements for me. Um, and like close grip bench versus wide grip bench. So I just call them different exercises. I, I don't arbitrarily move the hands and feet around just to feel a little bit different. And also just uh, for folks, um, for you guys as well, but mostly for folks watching, my idea of variation for say bent over barbell rows is conventional overhand barbell rows for three to four months, then three to four months of underhand easy bar rows, then three to four months of cambered bar rows with a slightly bigger range of motion. So your um, the technical wherewithal that you have to come back to to come back to barbell rows is like two or three sessions worth of technique, uh, and then you're, it feels just as good as ever. I'm not talking about like barbell rows, barbell rows, barbell rows, and then you go to like one arm cable underhand row to your cock for three months and then back, and you have no idea how to bent row anymore. All that could have some utility. Uh, I'm just kidding. So, uh, but so so I'm you know, talking about varying within the basic fundamentals uh, of compound bar, uh, you know, uh, compound movements. Um, I, I think I think that's where sort of the best results can be found so that so that your downside which is a very good downside uh, of relearning the technique to start to get really bigger volume loads I, again I, i'm skeptical that during the relearning of technique we have a i think that we have a problem from accumulating enough volume load enough force production to grow during the relearning phase but i think we benefit more from the novelty effect especially with more advanced lifters during that time so i think we actually uh, probably would see the similar results in hypertrophy but then of course exit up. But I think, yeah, if the relearning phase is too long, I think there's a problem there. So I absolutely see your point of the trade-offs, uh, which is why I tend to think that the especially confusing way to train uh, is literally altering your exercises once a week. Uh, that there's a really nasty tracking problem. Uh, and it's a really nasty fatigue management problem because there's a different fatigue all the time. Like, oh, guys are like, oh, I didn't feel so great today in legs. I did lots of deadlifts and squats. Last time felt great with extensions and curls. What the fuck's wrong with you? Of course you felt worse. Um, so, and also I think that um, directed adaptation, uh, especially with myonuclear domain integrated into there, I think you really have to hammer a muscle in a particular way for a while, especially if you're advanced, to be like, grow permanently, motherfucker. Because I think one session a muscle's like, ah, fuck, just kind of leave me alone. Like, I'll, I'll give you some growth temporarily. And then as soon as you leave, I'll fucking take it away. I think most of your body is built like that. That's sequential. It's like learning language. You know, you hear some Spanish every now and again, your body's like, fuck that. I'm not interested in this shit. You hear it for two and a half weeks straight. 
or five, you know, fifteen, you know, three weeks straight like Mano does when he's in a, one of the more exotic locations, killing people for the government or whatever the hell he really does for a job. Uh, I think that then you know you get some 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 really set in stone adaptations when you do sequential kind of stuff. So what I like to do is sequence, 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 sequence rotate just a little bit, sequence that, rotate just a little, sequence that, and then come back to the old stuff maybe a year later or something like that. Um, I think, uh, Eric, you and I are sort of, um, I'll do some uh, slightly smaller intervals than you in sequencing, but I think we're on the same road that that kind of every now and again sequencing, maybe for you it's every six months or something, for me it's every three on average. Uh, some, I think there's some merit to that sort of, sort of whole system. I would agree, and I know Meno's got to go pretty soon, but I think it's, I think, you can find variety more frequently or less frequently and, and it'll both work. And uh, I think the, for example, you could follow a block model where like you talked about just exactly what you said, or I think you could follow an undulating model with slightly more frequent exercise variation, but not to the level of microcycle versus microcycle, but you could have uh, undulations in stress levels just to encapsulate both repetitions and, total volume and, and load, um, and then modify exercises less. And I think you're going to kind of get to the same place. And so long as I think we're both on the same page here, you're not completely re reentering the, the new, like the noob phase of level of motor learning, then you're probably fine. And as a side note, I love how every time you talk about bodies or muscles, they're so cranky. You're like, ah, I don't want to. <laughs> that's the advanced. That's the advanced muscle. Is like an old commodity Jewish man. They're like, hey, you want to, you want to grow? He's like, hey, grow. What is, what is this? Hey. That's it. That's how it works. I'm not that's big it. enough for you. Come on. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> Perfect. Man. Yeah, I, yeah, I can go uh, pretty soon. But uh, I'll throw in a few facts rather than. Um, uh, I think in terms of practical application, very largely in agreement with both Mike and uh, Eric. Um, one big downside, I think, of program hopping or excess variation, I think that is, that is one of the big reasons a lot of people don't make long-term progression program hopping, uh, is that you induce a lot of muscle damage when you start completely novel movement. So if you change your grip or something, fine. But if you just start, you know, split squats and then you do leg press and then you do squats, then you're going to induce a lot of muscle damage and uh, that will come at the cost of how much volume or frequency you can uh, accumulate in your training. Um, Another one, really cool study from the 90s, was a six-month study. Don't remember the exercise, but they measured muscle growth and strength over a six-month period in untrained individuals. Muscle growth was linear for the first six months, and strength gains were uh, exponential. So in the first, they went like really fast, and then they tapered off. Uh, and then, so the correlation between strength and size basically increased throughout the duration of the study as a result. Uh, in powerlifters, there are two really good studies on what defines uh, powerlifting performance and what separates stronger and weaker powerlifters. And these find 0.86 to 0.95 correlations between thought-free mass and powerlifting performance, which is absolutely insane. 0.95 is like a level you never really see in research. It's something that exists almost only in theory. So that's like saying almost one-to-one, -one, the, the bigger guy is a stronger guy. Uh, and it's also in weightlifters, there's also one or two really good studies that find really high correlations. Um, so I'm definitely a big fan. Uh, yeah, true. A uh, big fan of, uh, in natural trainees, I think strength and size are much more strongly correlated in practice than a lot of people think where um, they think there's this huge discrepancy between the two. Uh, I think in, in, when steroids come into play, I think the discrepancy certainly widens, but in natural trainees, um, not so much. Um, 
Trailer was one thing, but Jay, if you're watching this, I'm cutting this interview short just for you. So uh, I have to go do my uh, consultation. And um, I don't know if you want guys want to continue, but uh, I'm out. It was great talking to you guys. Yeah, and, thanks. Uh, see you at the next one. All right, yeah. cheers. Have a good minute. Are you guys happy to continue, or have you got any other points you want to make? Boy, am I glad he's gone. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say it, Eric. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> we clearly both wanted to say that. <laughs> Just kidding, man. Um, we love you. Yeah. Assuming we're recording this part. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, 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 we can, I can stay a bit longer. Let me look at my schedule real quick. I think I'm good till, yeah, I'm good. I think I have another half hour. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a, I think we've covered a, a whole lot. And just to summarize a little bit in terms of everyone's in agreement, main kind of barbell basics should be your kind of bread and butter for the most part. Um, and then variation within that, I mean, you want to have a few variants that you become very good at. And then kind of changing those will be between kind of every format. Well, basically variation. We don't want to do it too frequently or too often microcycle to microcycle is something we want to avoid. Um, and Mike has a point he wants to make. So I'm going to. Yeah, Steve, it may be, I don't know, uh, Eric, if you want to do this, but maybe instructive. I think, um, like if I was watching this, um, I would say, see that, you know, we have some interesting, super hyper theoretical, uh, disagreements that, you know, uh, many folks will understand some folks it'll be like, like, like it's all Greek to me. Um, I think we a lot of times tend to agree on some stuff where sort of we know what it is and we're sort of kind of nodding because we speak the technical lingo. I think it might be beneficial for us to go over some more of our agreements on shit that we think is definitely a bad idea. Because I think a lot mm. of people walk away from this. Uh, I know a lot of people like that will just label things as good ideas, but then because they have no context for what is the opposite or what is a bad idea, they'll be like, hey, so what, what do you think about this program? I'm like, Jesus Christ, how could you ask me that question if you thought this was what I was advocating? And they're like, well, maybe it was also this. So you think a lot of times it may be helpful to be like, well, this shit is definitely just probably not yeah, a good idea. Yeah, right. do you guys want to do that? Is that, the, I think it'd be some valuable stuff come out of that maybe? Yeah. 100%. That's actually what I wanted to move, well, finish with oh, kind of like the biggest mistakes people make sure. when varying exercises. So I don't know if, Mike, you want to start? It sounds like you've got some ones you want to fire off. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, the, the rotating exercises once a week thing um, is, you know, is curious. I think that there is an argument for much more advanced individuals who are already technically proficient at everything um, and already at the very edge of their adaptation. Um, and they need essentially massive disruptions uh, to, to bump the myonuclear domain ceiling uh, close to its, its limits and just get as many fucking satellite cells as possible. I think they're, they're, to them, anything short of massive disruptions just don't cause any more hypertrophy and just won't. I think those kinds of individuals may benefit from higher variation. Uh, basically, just you haven't done lunges in three weeks and you do 100 sets of lunges and your glutes fall off and maybe when they recover, they add in some more uh, cross-sectional area where it's just conventional progressive training just won't really do anything for them anymore. They, those kinds of individuals might benefit a little bit more from that. I'm just really skeptical that once a week rotation is the way to do that. I think maybe once a month. Um, but uh, I think especially for you know beginners, intermediates, it, this whole idea, like I'm, I'm going to deadlift one day and the next day for back, we're going to do bent row like come in and figure out what exercises we're doing and just fucking blast the muscle. I think that kind of stuff, you know, just because it's volume 
And because it's intensity and because these people grow from anything, they'll grow from it anyway. Um, they just won't uh, grow from it maximally at all. And, and also there's some, some other bad stuff there that they never really master the technique on anything because it all alternates way too fast. I think a lot of bodybuilders, even at a high level, you'd be surprised at how much they suck at lifting weights. They have no idea the technique on anything because mm -hmm. they've never really had any good practice with anything, really try to optimize it or even look up how to do it because they change exercises so fast it sort of doesn't even matter. Um, so I think um, just picking a couple of movements and getting really good at them and slowly but surely adding weight to them and adding potentially reps and adding sets, um, I think that's that's when it comes uh, to being a really sort of a very good thing. Um, uh, but if you just alter so fast that you really have no idea what's going on, um, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll literally have been like, you know, uh, sharing a bench press with someone. And I'm like, what are you going to today? And they're like, I don't know. We'll see how I feel. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> like, uh, well, how good are you at the bench? And they're like, well, you know, I did dumbbell press before this time, but last time I was three exercises in before I did bench. And I'm like, Jesus, how do you even keep track of that? Like, I think it's fine to put bench at different places in your training uh, schedule for the day, but you got to at least dope that out for a couple of months to see how strong you are and then just sort of slowly move up. So I think that this super variation is just uh, thoughtless. And I think, honestly, people do it out of boredom really quick before I stop ranting and give the mic to Eric. We had a, I just did a seminar in Hong Kong with a bunch of really great folks. And one of the questions they asked me was, how do I, how, how do I give this science shit to my clients who want to do different shit every day because they're bored? And basically my answer was that, you know, like um, a doctor doesn't promise you'll have a fun time at the surgery. Um, he promises that you're going to get the best surgery he can give. Um, you know, tr personal training, you, you can be a babysitter if you want, but what you can really do is say, let's, do you come here to hang out with me and have fun? They'll be like, no, I come here to get in shape. Let me just do the best job I can to get you in shape, which is going to require a little bit of boredom. You know, they don't go to their tax guy and say, listen, getting taxes done isn't that fun. Can you like put on some different music or some shit? Use really big fonts. <laughs> you know, hey, government, here's fucking, uh, you know, comic sans font. Like that's nonsense. People know that's nonsense. But in the gym, I think people get a twist a little bit of like, let's fucking do some different shit. Ah, oh, motherfucker, you want to grow. You might want to do kind of the same shit for a while, see some good results, and then maybe think about switching it. Go for it, Eric. Have you got any kind of comments on frequent exercise kind of variation within microcycle to microcycle? Yeah, I, I think you can definitely assess, am I someone who thrives on novelty or am I someone who really likes to keep things ordered and tight and specific and make, and make progress. And I've seen both in Hmong bodybuilders. And, and then you just have to figure out, okay, I just need to make sure that I'm not actually being harmed or, or, or slowed down, I should say, by my emotional proclivities. But you do want to enjoy your training as, as much as you can. Um, and basically the level you want to get to as you scroll that back, it becomes less and less important. Like if we go all the way down to, like a soccer mom who, who just knows that if she lifts weights, uh, you know, as she, it'll, it'll improve the way she looks her confidence. She's looking to be stronger or just your average guy who wants to get back into shape. Yeah. You can change it up all, all the damn time. So long as you figure out a way to keep lifting weights for the rest of your life. Great. But I think we're kind of talking to a lot of like, competitive bodybuilders on this podcast. Um, in that case, you need to figure out how do I not lose any, uh, any level of, of optimality in my training. And I think, Sure, that person who really, really likes to keep things similar and consistent, uh, you need to, you know, all do all the other stuff, make sure progressive overload is actually happening, but don't be so dogmatic and staying the same uh, that you don't have any variation. Uh, so maybe every uh, fourth or fifth mesocycle, you go through a block uh, where you, you just you do everything different on purpose. 
Um, and I think so long as you kind of have an intro cycle and don't deal with the muscle damage issues Menno brought up, that would probably be a good thing for, uh, you know, avoiding potential injuries and acting as kind of a, a bit of a reset, if you will. Um, and then um, on the side of it where you've got the people who are super, super want to change all the time. And, and if left to their own devices, they would come in and go like, what do I feel like hitting, bro? Like, and then it's a different movement for every, every movement pattern. You just need to put some constraints around that. So I would say um, one to two slots, one to two options, maybe maybe three on, on your big kind of cardinal movements like vertical, horizontal push and pull, hip hinge and, and, and squat pattern. Uh, and then feel free on your isolations to really go to town. I think that's where you can kind of let your – your, your need for, for the spices of life to get spicy. You know, you can do a different bicep curl every damn time if you want. So long as that barbell row and lat pull down are, are improving, it probably is not hurting you. And I think those single joint movements are where you can get your spice. Um, and then maybe you could have, you know, a, a different rotation of what those two main movements are every three mesocycles. I think that that's kind of a reasonable constraints to getting the most variety you can without potentially causing issues. Uh, and then the least variety you can without potentially causing issues. And I think so long as both have variation in training stress, uh, loads, um, and, and including things like deloads, uh, and then have some kind of periodized structure, whether that's undulating block, both linear or some combination thereof, you should be able to avoid all those pitfalls. <laughs> Perfect. And I don't know if you guys already have one, um, but I have a thought of one that I see in that's kind of excess variation within kind of sessions. So whether it be like a push day and they're doing like an overhead press, yes. an incline press, a decline press, dumbbell fly, cable fly, like every single push they can possibly fathom. Um, so I don't know if one of you want to kind of start beating on that one. <laughs> yeah, I freaking hate it. When I, when I see someone do squats, leg press and hack squats in the same session, I'm just like, why are you doing this? You know? And, um, most of the time, the issue is not just the fact that they're completely overlapping and that's unnecessary. It's that also it throws their volume distribution per body part way off, uh, because they're thinking of muscle, they're thinking of exercises as for legs, uh, or, or, or something like that. Um, instead of thinking about, all right, what's the total number of sets I need to put on each muscle group? And then once you do that and then you figure out how does these muscle groups match up with these movements, like a decent way to think of it, like in these cardinal patterns, right, is that your horizontal push, that's chest delts and tries, right? If you want to really simplify it, overhead press, delts and tries, and your rows are back rear delts and buys. And so same with your pull downs for the most part. It's more complex than that, but that's a decent level of understanding. And then when you do a squat pattern, that's glutes and quads. And if it's a free weight thing, you're going to get some lumbar. Uh, and then if you're doing a hip hinge, that's glutes and hams. And depending on how you're loading that, that's probably a fair amount of lumbar as well. Then it starts to make sense like, oh, shit, no wonder I shouldn't do leg press, squats, and uh, a hack squat because they're all glutes and quads. And, and maybe that's why my hamstrings suck. So I think uh, understanding that can kind of get you outside of those pitfalls. And uh, I think I'll stop there because I know Mike has some opinions too. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a thing for me. Another uh, aspect that I don't like about using too many exercises in one session or really too many exercises per week is that, uh, you know, as I've demonstrated, I'm a fan of multi mesocycle exercise rotation for the purpose of novelty and injury prevention in the long term. If you tr just do every exercise you know of within the one microcycle, 
where's your variation going to come from? Be like, let's do something to shock the body. Body's never seen. Well, seen everything. Uh, you're just not going to, there's no shock anymore. <laughs> there's no novelty. You prevented yourself from generating novelty by using every exercise all the time. Another real world concern, make any goddamn sense to me, is how long it takes to warm up for all that shit. Uh, I mean, Jesus, you're just putting plates. I have no, I, I watch bodybuilder Instagram videos, probably to just torture myself. And I see them taking <laughs> eight plates on and off the hack squat, eight plates on and off the leg press, bunch of stacks on the leg extension. And then they're squatting and putting four plates on and off that. Jesus Christ, you, you at the gym to t- take plates on and put them off the stuff. And it's not like, oh, you're fucking lazy, bro. Every single bit of effort you used to do that is effort you could have used to stimulate your legs or rest between sets to get more reps and more relative intensity and all that stuff. So what I like to do is once I set my shit up, I like to stay there. So in any case, um, I think that, you know, the warming up stuff is just a huge pain in the ass. Uh, once you're at a station, stay there. And that's one of the great reasons why downsets are so sweet. You're high bar squatting. You already got your weight on. Do four sets of squats. Then you pull off 10%, 15%, 20%. And then you do another three or four sets of squats. Holy quads, that's a fucking workout. And if you really want variation... Later in the week, when you come back and do your second workout, you can do leg presses as a primary quad movement and just do eight sets of leg presses. Um, I don't see why every session has to have so many different exercises in it um, because a lot of it just turns into junk volume after a while. So, for example, people do overhead press, incline press, flat press, and flies. Fly, I don't know what the fuck um, – what's it called? Uh, I don't know what you get out of flies when they're like the fifth exercise or whatever. I, don't, I think it's dick. So, But if you really wanted to hit – all those muscles well through the microcycle, you would do overhead press and incline press day one. And then day two, later in the week, you would do bench press and flies. You both get an advantage. Um, and I think it's just one of those like flex magazine routine type of shits where like, let's blast chest and you go around and do everything for chest. And if it's really a volume issue, just do more sets of the same shit. You're already warmed up and, and sort of to the point of neural efficiency correlating with muscular gains versus the other way around. You're already really good at bench press. And you, matter of fact, I will say this, um, I don't know. I hopefully Eric can chime in on this if those sirens go away at all, but um, uh, maybe not. <laughs> uh, Eric, tell them to like, man, buzz off. We've got a podcast here. We don't have time for emergency services. But uh, so I think an advantage there is I actually feel a better mind muscle connection multiple sets into a training routine with the same exercise than I do uh, at the beginning. So like the first set of squats is always like, what the hell was that? Like you watch the video, you looked good, but you know, you're sort of not in touch with your quads. They're not pumped yet. Um, four sets of squats later, especially if you lighten the load to do down sets. Oh my God, I just feel my quads like t- speaking to my soul. But like if I have to do a different exercise, there's that short-term relearning of neural patterns that again limits your performance. So like multiple exercises, like six exercises for one body part in the same session is just a good way to replicate excessive variation that you would typically experience if you changed it every, every microcycle. It's a good way to get that within one session. So it's just, just utter, utter stupidity. And, and I also think that there's no more than usually two, maybe three movement patterns per any one muscle group that you need to do per microcycle to get all of the adaptation. So for example, if you're doing some kind of vertical pulling movement and some kind of horizontal row, you're pretty much getting the whole back, like short of maybe one other kind of variant where you do more like rhomboid type of shit, then there, there you go. There's three movement patterns and you've got everything you need. The only thing is, well, how am I going to get enough work? We'll just do more sets. But I think people search for like, I've got to hit every part of my back. They just do two or three sets of 18 fucking exercises in one back day. That causes a whole lot of problems because of the efficiency problem, because of the warming up, pissing away energy, and because of the fact that you no longer have any kind of um, variation. There, there is no more variation to throw in. 
um, like Eric would, would say, you know, Eric's approach would be to just to, to, to take a mesocycle and do some variations you're not used to at all, just to get, you know, sort of uh, get rid of the fatigue and the local injury stuff for the variations you've been using. Well, well that's not an option anymore because you're used to everything, right? So you just say, it's the same shit. <laughs> and then for me, the switching of the main exercises, that's definitely gone. So I think people just, um, and they overuse variations in a microcycle or in a session. It's just a very lack of forward thinking. It's like, well, what's going to hit me now? This, but what's going to, there's two questions always, always two questions to ask about anything you do in training. Uh, one is how is this going to affect me uh, acutely? How much muscle I'm going to grow, et cetera. And how does that set up and or or and or take away from future potential gains and that second one is a, is a, is a big thing uh, people forget that because they're like let's just go in there and smash it and they end up missing out a lot uh, in one way is by doing excessive variation <laughs> no i definitely think so and i think i don't know if i i see it with people doing it and they're trying to kind of get around doing junk volume because like doing lots of sets of squats and lots of like if they move on to other machines and move on to other things they're like oh yeah this feels hard now so this isn't junk volume whereas if i was still doing those other movements it is when in reality it's not going to be productive volume it's even junkier it's even junkier because you can't even your ner nervous system isn't even good at that movement yet so it's like a one gigantic fucking warm-up after you've done real real weight so unless you push the metabolites really hard which maybe you can um it's it just turns into a, a giant fucking waste of your time but I, honestly i think um a lot of people just get bored man and they just don't want to train in a way that's optimal and i, I hear eric's point on sort of uh, working with people to their um to their needs psychologically and what they best re respond to. But I've always been of the opinion that I'm just going to say shit that I think is optimal, like a machine would train. And they would, if you just program a robot to train, this is how they would train. And then I see the, um, the, uh, you know, the pleasure of training as a trade-off. <laughs> that sounds really fucked up. Like you want to have fun. Great. You forget about first place, second place, third place. You can be in fifth and sixth place and have plenty of fun. Right. And then I would also be a little bit skeptical of the, even the soccer mom that comes in. Oh, um, <laughs> Eric says you're lucky there's a siren going uh, uh, you know even the soccer mom that comes in she may very well be into all sorts of you know having fun on the gym type of shits but 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 she's going to be pissed eventually that she's like well I want better results like oh now bitch now you say results so you you was it was about having fun earlier wasn't it so I think I think Eric does a very valuable thing by maybe introspecting with his clients and finding out what you know how much variation do you like but I think uh, undertone to that conversation always has to be an explicit talk about trade-offs like you, you look you, you you may very well like this level of variation but here's probably what's best um i'll leave it to you but again if you want the best here it is and if you want to have more fun here it is so i'm just lucky there's sirens <laughs> no i think that was a brilliant kind of end and i think eric was overall in agreement um yeah except the soccer mom won't keep training just that's Eric's comments. <laughs> Had to read those up. So um, I, I think we should probably call it there. Otherwise, I think we'll just be holding on a conversation between me and Mike and Eric will just be hovering whilst hopefully he's okay over there um, and there's nothing major going on. That's what's going on still. Wow. Just the massive siren. So I'm going to say thank you for having me on and then mute myself again. No, yeah. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming on. So, yeah, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much, Mike. Hopefully we can get some more of these. Thanks for having us, Massive thank you to Menno as well, who's already left us. And yeah, thank you all for listening and uh, tuning in. It's been a fantastic chat. My program, I squatted this and that. Week four of my program, I squatted not only five pounds more. Like, well, how much fatigue are you carrying week four through week one? Well, a lot. Well, if you drop that off, it could, could be your squat went up by 45 pounds. Who knows? So 
I think it's really good to look at the uh, changes mesocycle to mesocycle for sure. And also, like, there's not enough time, you know, week to week. Like, am I growing muscle week to week? Who the fuck knows? You grew like a gram and a half of muscle. Get out of my face. There's no way to measure that. So uh, you just, like Eric said, a very great analogy. You bake a cake. Put that motherfucker in the oven. When it comes out, if you fucked up, then you're going to know. But you're not going to look at the oven and be like, oh, shit, it's turning brown. It should be turning yellow. Like, yeah, you might as well finish baking it because there's nothing you can do at that point to change anything. The That's the people who kind of sort of know what their land, volume landmarks. That's how they should go about things. Uh, the reason that in the physique templates we have a plus or minus rating system, which I think you can still work into an advanced uh, program, is, is that um, we have to have some way – of people who don't really know their minimum effective volume or their MRV for navigating that uh, topography from one to the other. And the, the way that we proxied it is basically the following. I think, and I would be willing to postulate the following, that if from workouts you are getting not remotely sore, like not even a twinge, not remotely fatigued, and not remotely pumped during, that you're probably under at or under your minimum effective volume like there's no way that a meat and potatoes good volume is just not going to fuck you up at all right and this works for high frequency too like people don't exactly talk about high frequency like it's great i'm never sore and i feel great like they say i'm never sore but they're like i everything feels kind of fucked up i feel like shit i'm gonna die please help um you know they try to run away from the bulgarian training center and get on a train you know to, to america that sort of thing but um so if you are basically we just ask questions about like how fucked up are you? And, and here's how the algorithm works. If you're not remotely disrupted in any way, you're not getting pumps, you're not getting any little bit of soreness at all from training, you probably, uh, your volume automatically goes up by just a little bit uh, for the next sort of microcycle. We actually work in a half microcycle increment. So the first part of a microcycle feeds into the second, the second feeds into the next part of the first, that sort of thing, because it's a faster autoregulatory adjustment. Um, and then... Yeah, so, so that's number one. So if you just basically don't feel shit, you're probably not training hard enough and you'll probably need to go up. The next thing is if you uh, are just dying, like you're getting crazy sore, like the way we ask for soreness is well, now that you're training this muscle again, like let's say chest is Monday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Now that you're training chest Wednesday, are you still sore for Monday? If you're like, yes, I can't move my pecs. I don't give a shit what else you think. You did too much Monday, plain and simple. So the the feeds forward to the next Monday and reduces the number of sets that you're going to do next Monday. So that then it goes down, right? And by that path, it kind of keeps you in your maximum adaptive volume. But because you're adapting to the exercises, that ends up rising from right around your MAV to right around your MRV. So the only way we use like the soreness and pumps and how you feel is to, to work away the extremes, right? The definitely too much and the definitely not enough. So like if someone is like, I'm literally incapable of performing because I'm getting so sore and so fatigued, we know that's probably too much for ma- for optimal hypertrophy or anything close. If someone's literally just not feeling shit and they're like, dude, I could do triple the work and still not get sore, clearly they probably need more work to get more hypertrophy. So as long as we constrain them to that range, using those sort of inf- that information for autoregulation, we let them go after that. And of course, that all comes with repetitions and reserve guidelines. Like week one is three reps in reserve. Week two is three reps in reserve because they get used to the exercises much, much a lot between week one and week two. And then it's two reps in reserve, one rep in reserve, deload, that sort of thing. So that's the only sort of autoregulation sort of insight of are you within that general hypertrophy range that we use because we just don't know anything. You know, there's thousands of people have bought these things. The fuck, I know what their volume is, right? We start them really low and the algorithm 
and potentially takes them as high as they need to get good workouts and never higher, right? Um, so, uh, you know, some people like some people like uh, message us questions and they're like, so it's week two and I'm sore as fuck. Should I be plus like plus one because of plus one ad sets? Should I plus one? I'm like, no, you can fucking read the document. You're going to die. There's, you know, some people just like we have to deal with egos, of course, because they're just plus one as a matter of course. Like if they're not adding sets, they think there's something morally wrong with them. So, so we definitely just want to keep people in that middle range and let the volume kind of rise throughout. Other than that, totally um, what everything Eric said was great. And, and I think we really have to be skeptical of progress analyses that are any shorter than mesocycle length. Um, that, that whole baking the cake thing, the analogy, I think our, our, our um, plus one, minus one auto regulation system is kind of like a baking thermometer. Like we don't know a whole lot, right? We don't know what the fuck the cake looks like, but we know the temperature is either way too low or way too high. But as long as it's between 400 and 450 degrees, fucking golden, bake the cake, mesocycle later for advanced athletes two or three mesocycles later you're going to find out what's going on one quick little thing how do you know if your back is getting bigger for three mesocycles in a row you do bent over barbell rows you improve in sets of 10 for barbell rows by let's say 15 kilos total but you're not sure if that's just neural adaptation or some combination of neural adaptation and hypertrophy so what you do is three mesocycles after that, you focus on underhand barbell rows, different exercise, much different, different technique, and you do make the same PRs. How do you know if you gain muscle? When you come back to overhand barbell rows again, are you hitting PRs pretty fucking quick? If the answer is yes, you're bigger because you just have more muscle and there's no way to explain it in any way. If you're not and you have to struggle for months to get back to hitting any PRs, ooh, you probably didn't get that much bigger. And, and, and again, the advanced athlete might have to do another two months of getting used to that movement to start hitting all-time PRs. But basically, over the months slash years, if you're PRing for reps on movements, you're getting bigger because you don't get neural adaptation over the years, right? A couple months later, you're as good as you're going to be at high bar squatting in a fundamental sense that's not like five pounds up or down. Um, and that's why I'm a huge fan of tracking long-term compound heavy basic numbers. You know, I tell people like, they don't like dumbass Instagram posts. I don't want to post the fucking same. I'm tired of myself on Instagram. I'm just gonna, I swear to God, it pains me to post that thing. But I like post a back picture, right? It's huge erectors. And I'm like, how do you get this back? You bent row 315 for four sets of 10 strict from the ground all the way to the tummy without moving. That's the only way I know how to truly guarantee myself muscle size. When I do that with 335, I promise you I'll have a bigger back. That's what people need to focus on in the long term to really know that because, you know, bodybuilders, and I'm sure Eric's coached a bunch of clients that are like this. They're like, you know, I didn't PR, but like I felt that the movement has like more quality or whatever. Like, yeah, you can, that might be growing you more, but like, man, I just wouldn't put that in the bank. You know what I mean? So thoughts brilliant i think both of you overall might have slightly different kind of on the minute level in terms of microcycles and microcycles they look differently but when we look and we have that bird's eye view you're also having progressive overloads of volume over the long term and you're using kind of appropriate strength assessments to see whether it's appropriate or not and um, the amount you're doing and i think might you just adjust it on a kind of more frequent basis potentially um and eric does it on a kind of longer term view but overall there's very little differences there at all i think the viewers are probably going to be a bit disappointed pissed <laughs> eric was there anything you wanted to um respond to on what mike said or are you happy where we are no, I, I found myself largely agreeing for the most part. Yeah. 
Awesome. Um, so if either both of you are happy with where we've left kind of this progressive overload discussion, um, I'm very happy and I'm sure the viewers will be and the listeners will be really happy with your discussion there. I thought it was really, really interesting, very fruitful. And I think you kind of laid out a lot of really important aspects of this for hypertrophy. So I want to thank you massively, both of you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, thanks, thanks so much, Steve. This is always really fun, and I always end up learning a bunch of shit, too, when I talk to you folks. So. That's how I get my CEUs, man. That's it. <laughs> Being on the podcast counts for CEUs. I got to check. Man, that would be so sweet. <laughs> awesome, guys. Thank you very much, and I hope we can do this again. Thank you all the listeners for watching, um, and we will talk to you soon.